It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. You arrived on my doorstep so bedraggled this morning. You were cold, you were hungry. You gave me some Rice Krispies. I did. When was the last time you had Rice Krispies? Mm, probably some time ago. Yeah. Do you think of cereal as being childish? I've never been a great breakfast sort of person. I mean, apart from the bacon sandwich, obviously. Yeah, of course. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I quite like Frosties. Mmm. Very sugary. Though. They're, they're great. <laughs> um, now... I've been a bit worried that I hurt your feelings. Yeah. With my constant nitpicking about the the presentation of your soups. Yes. And I'm I'm worried that it's not your confidence. Yeah. I'm worried that maybe you won't become Britain's great next soupier. Is it a soupier? Is it croupier but with soup? Maybe, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Yeah. yeah. If there isn't the word, that yeah. it should be that. Yeah. Because I feel that with the right amount of self-esteem and the drive that you so clearly have and ambition, you, you could become the next Covent Garden soup company. Make your own soup. <laughs> uh, and and you, do have, um, you do have a soup for me to sample. I mean, it's impressive that I managed to... I, this, was, this was the soup that was delayed from last week, and I then froze it, and then I remembered late last night I needed to unfreeze it. And you turned up with Tupperware this morning. And I turned up with the Tupperware this morning. And it's been in the microwave. Just before we take the yes. lid off, um, I just want to, to raise any other business with a, a previous soup. Now, you, you made a pea and mint soup the other yes. week. Was that, was that for a dinner party, was it? You, you weren't invited to, yeah. Yes, of course, yeah. yeah. And was that a, a recipe of your, your own invention? No, it was Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Uh-huh. And, and how do you feel it went? Good. Okay. Well, we managed to get that soup professionally appraised wow bye well have a listen to this hi there ed i'm really delighted that you made my pea and mint <laughs> from the picture you sent me it looks pretty uh peaish and minty um i'm sorry to hear however that it turned out a bit too salty my advice on that front would be if you make it again add a bit less salt <laughs> Always good to season uh, late and moderately, and then, you know, you can make those final tweaks at the end. But your instinct to counter the saltiness with a bit of acidity, lemon juice and even a few drops of vinegar, has a good instinct. So hopefully you ended up with something pretty palatable on the pea front. Cheers, Ed. That is, that is, that is like culinary royalty. It's amazing, isn't it? That, could, that... We have him, could we have him over here and I could bring him a, a, a soup? Do you not think we've asked the man enough? <laughs> he could talk about his cookbook. What, what if he had us over to the River Cottage? I, I tell you what you could, we could do is I, you, we could invite him here and then I could cook here. Mm. And then he could sort of watch me cooking. What's in it for him, I'm wondering? <laughs> Maybe, maybe you're overestimating how much fun that would be for Hugh. Really? 
to, to watch you cook? You could sort of train me. Oh, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Or like one of those sort of reality TV shows. <laughs> Uh, I, I just want to say as well, um, he chose his words so beautifully there by describing your soup as peeish and minty. Well, I mean, the thing is, he to be fair to him, it's quite hard to adjudicate on a soup you haven't tasted, isn't it? Oh, not not for him though. Surely, no. surely he can just tell one look. Anyway, so just, just one look. What do we have this week? Um, we have a Mexican bean soup, not with the black beans, but with the black-eyed beans. Now, um. <laughs> This, uh, this this soup has a, just on site. It has a more hearty quality to it. Hearty, yeah. I'd yeah. say it's. Um, I don't know where the line is where something ceases to become a soup and becomes a stew. It's not a stew. What is the delineation when it, when it becomes? You know when you see it. You know when you see it. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Mmm. You've gone heavy on the tomato puree, which I like. Mmm. It's a bit tomatoey. Nothing I put that. I put in more tomato than the recipe asked for. Actually, you, that's very that's very um, insightful of you. Oh yeah, Egon Rone of Macclesfield over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too tomatoey, basically, is what you're saying. No, I I like that. Mm. I like a strong tomatoey top note. It, it called for one cup, and I think I did more like a tin. And, and what caused that was that um, a spillage? Was it just an over exuberance? Over exuberance. Warmer with a bit of garnish, it's a bit nicer. You're criticising my microwaving technique there, aren't you? No, no, I'm just sort of saying I should have brought the garnish. And um, and who did you serve this up for? My wife. And she is, as previously discussed, she is a critic of a similar level of uh, thoroughness or harshness to I me. I think in Yiddish you'd say a fine schmecker. Is she a fine schmecker, is she? I'm going to look up fine schmecker. Do I can't seem to find fine schmecker. It's what my, fa- my father used to say, he's a fine schmecker. Your dad wasn't making up his own language like um, Professor Stanley Unwin was. Oh, he? fine schmecker. It's German, actually. Uh-huh. A person who appreciates good food. Fine schmecker, it's one word. Aha. Uh-huh. Hang on. It also seems to be Yiddish. Yiddish fine schmecker, on the other hand, has a whiff of sarcasm or mockery. We won't tell uh, Justine that. We don't want to cause any marital disharmony. No. Now, shall we uh, shall we say what we're talking about this week? Tell us. This episode was, I think, inspired by a news story I sent round at the end of last year about a music venue that I used to frequent in Manchester, the Night and Day Cafe. And it was being threatened with closure after a local resident complained about the noise. And I thought it was interesting because these places which, which give a city or a town cultural capital and, and make an attractive place to live then end up attracting a certain kind of gentrification that wants to close them down because it's inconvenient to have noise on the doorsteps. And and, and lots of people feel something's off about that. And we thought it merited a more detailed discussion. And today we're going to be talking about why nightlife is a key part of a city's cultural identity, how it can be a force for good, and how cities can develop the nighttime economy in harmony with residents. And we're going to be talking to Dr. Alessio Colliulis, who is an academic in urban economic development, Sasha Lord, who is Manchester's nighttime economy advisor, and Claire Lynch, who has been a resident in London Soho for the last two decades. I feel so ill-equipped to talk about this subject. <laughs> you, you, you go out. Yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm nighttime economy and me. They don't immediately spring to mind. But do that's, they? maybe that's because you're thinking about it all wrong. You, you, you'll go to a party. You'll go to a restaurant. You'll go to the theatre. 
The, the, Throw some shapes. Th- yes. <laughs> um, the funny thing is, I think of you as like really a nighttime economy person. You see, which I'm not at all. I barely leave the house. Although you said you were used to frequent night and day when I was younger. When yeah. I was in my twenties, I think I probably had the more stereotypical twenties experience than me than, than you. Probably. I don't think Gordon Brown uh, gave you any uh, any bandwidth to go out to a discotheque. Not really. Did he like a discotheque? Gordon Brown. Yeah. No. <laughs> Um, <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is White Lotus. Where are you up to with it? We finished Series 1 and we're at the foothills of Series 2. Oh, so you're in Italy now. We're in Italy. It's got escapism. It doesn't have lots of grisly murders. There are, there are bodies, but it's not gruesome. There's no politics. Mm. There's no law. There's nothing that requires an Ed trigger warning. Exactly. And is the theme music going around in your head constantly? It's different in the two of them, isn't it? I think it's the same. <laughs> right. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh. Do you sing along with it, you and Justine? No. but You don't was... skip the intro, do you? No. <sighs> Thank goodness. I'm that. not an intro skipper. Good, I don't know if we could still be friends if yeah. you were. Well, that's good. So that's my reason to be cheerful. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Daffodils. I was walking in our local cemetery the other day. I saw daffodils. I'm thinking, it's it's January. I'm, I'm pleased to see them, but is this climate change? But there's a Beatles blog that I read, and they are currently going through the events of January 1969. There is a photograph of the outside of the Beatles headquarters in Savile Row in London, which incidentally, before it was their building, it was where the bowler hat was invented. Mm. And uh, General Robert Ross, who burned down the White House, once lived there. It's a building of some pedigree. Mm. It's where they played their rooftop concert. On the windowsills, they daffodils. have uh, yeah flower boxes with from daffodils. the 1960s. And, and so somebody commented, "This they, they must be fake. They don't get daffodils in January." And I thought, "Well, maybe maybe you do." Well, I'm not sure. I want to say I'm, I'm not being a climate change denier. Yeah. I know there's a crisis here. I know the clock is ticking, and we're past the eleventh yeah. hour. I'm just saying that that maybe daffodils aren't aren't a symptom of that. And well, it's nice could, to see. Them. Maybe our listeners could tell us. Yes, please. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're going to start the conversation by talking to a lecturer who's teaching urban economic development at the Bartlett Development Planning Unit at UCL. Dr. Alessio Colioulis, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. I just want to say off the bat as well that Alessio looks fashionable. <laughs> this is this is not somebody stuck in the musty halls of academia. You're living... He looks like somebody who could be studying nightlife. You do. You, you look like you're not just studying it, but you're out there living and breathing it. Is that right? Great. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take it as a, as a compliment. Yes, I'm trying really, really hard not to be the academic in the Avery Tower. Tell us a bit more about how you became involved in this area of study. What was it that drew you to it? I have a background in development economics, and I was always fascinated with the historical trajectory of the city of Detroit in the US, one of those powerhouses that in the first half of the 20th century became famous for the automobile industry, but also for its music. And then as factories in the US started to outsource the production across uh, lots of countries in the so-global south, Detroit started to experience a long-term decay. But something that um, has been created there was one type of genre of, of music, techno music. 
And I'm sure that a lot of people listening to the podcast may have a different opinion on where it has originated. But let's say we all agree with 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 that bit of the story. I just want to check Ed's opinion on that. What is where, where <laughs> do you consider techno to have originated? Uh, there's a big debate about it. Do you know what techno is? I do, more or less. When was the last time you you guys went clubbing? Um, it's a good question. Not within the last. I want to say. Five years. If I mean, if if I'm allowed to include karaoke booths, somewhat recently. Anytime you want to go, Alessio, you just call me <laughs> up. I'm, I'm I'm ready. I'm there. But I, I am, you know, I, I am out in the the city. But clubs, I think, I associate with something more with my youth. In fact, I remember I used to go to a nightclub every Friday night, and there were these guys in there, and I would always think, why are they here? It's there's something creepy about it. They're they're, they're ruining the place. And looking back, they were probably thirty years old. <laughs> um, so I think I've got no place as a man hurtling towards fifty. Uh, I've got no no place in a nightclub, surely. No, no, no. Let's let's not be be ages. And I think now there are more and more clubs that are actually very welcoming for people who also want to to bring kids and more like daytime events, for example. Actually, actually, I've done that. I've taken taken. I know we're talking nighttime economy, but I've taken my son to a daytime rave once. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the last time I was in a club. Can I just ask, with you mentioning Detroit, so that had this thriving cultural scene. When it was a boom town, when it was a motor boom town, and then something new rose up in in its post industrial decline. How common is that factor in cities that have really good nightlife? That there's there's been some kind of decline and reinvention. Yes, that's exactly the story. At least uh, in the UK, in the US, and in certain parts of Northern uh, Europe, uh, at uh, at one point, uh, a lot of post-industrial cities here in the UK. We can think about Manchester, Sheffield, uh, or Bristol. These cities had to uh, reinvent themselves. So, what happens, for example, in in the UK in the late eighties, early nineties, was a preoccupation of local governments in rethinking how to better utilize high streets and city centers. And that's when you had uh, an explosion uh, of lots of different clubs uh, appearing in post-industrial cities in the UK, but also outside the UK. Think about Rotterdam or Amsterdam, and obviously the famous example of, of Berlin. In the UK, we tend to define nighttime economy as all those activities that take place from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And, you know, another way of looking at it is what happens at cities after dark. Broadly speaking, it's those moments of the day where you have restaurants and cinemas and theatres open to residents, to national tourists, to tourists coming from abroad. And then you have more of the pubs open until, uh, you know, midnight or one. And then you have the nightclubs that stay open until 4 or 5, 6 a.m. Makes me tired even to think about it. <laughs> Do you think it's become sort of less controversial, the nighttime economy? I'm kind of remembering back to the 90s and 2000s. Would you remember this term 24-hour drinking that was introduced? When the licensing laws changed. Has it become more accepted? I would say so. On the one hand, it's absolutely true that, for example, a lot of regulations about people would behave under the heavy influence of alcohol that was really dominating the headlines for a couple of decades. And I think what has 
has happened in the last 10 or 15 years, it is my impression that uh, younger generations, I would say, drink less. There's less a stigma to talk about those things. And on the other hand, and I think it's equally very interesting, very important, I think we have broadened the discussion about what happens in cities at night. So, for example, there is more of a recognition that, yes, you have people who want to party at night, but also people who work at night. So for what happened during the pandemic was a sort of a recognition that the night in cities is something quite complex. There are people who want to sleep and there's people who want to party. There's people who work to make these parties possible. And then you have all sorts of other nighttime workers who sustain and reproduce life at night. You know, think about nurses, think about cleaners, not just maybe the bouncers and people working in clubs. What's the relationship between gentrification and the development or decline of nightlife? Okay, so this is the $1 million question. I read yesterday a piece of study conducted by several hospitality providers, companies that uh, they looked at uh, closure of UK nightclubs by the end of 2022. And, and, and one third of UK nightclubs have closed in the last year. And obviously, this is a combination of the pandemic and and perhaps also Brexit. But uh, already since the financial crisis in 2008, we have experienced a housing crisis that spilled over other sectors, also real estate. So you had a lot of night spaces that became unaffordable. So I think the affordability of night spaces in relation to gentrification is something that cities have to really plan for if they want uh, a thriving, happy nightlife. As a city manager, I think what you want to do is to create spaces that are attractive to people. Part of it these days is about offering a good nightlife and nighttime economy. So you have this conflict that you have to manage. And, and this often has resulted in making certain spaces and parts of the city a lot less affordable, especially perhaps for people who are residents there for, for, for a long time. I wanted to ask you about Printworks London in Canada Water. Tell us the, the story of that development. It's, Printworks is a great example of how nightlife has changed in the UK in the sense that... Um, at a time where lots of nightclubs were closing between roughly 2008 after the financial crisis and the 10 years after after that, Printworks arrived in, in London as a mega club uh, which can host thousands of people. It's interesting because um, Printworks, like many other clubs in the UK, are meanwhile spaces. So you have a developer which wants to regenerate an area and basically there is a, a call to promoters and creative agencies to use vacant space. And the promise is the following. I give you, for a very affordable competitive price, the use of the space 
you bring people, you create uh, your nights and uh, events. But then after five years, when I finish to regenerate and build, for example, houses, homes, flats, then uh, you'll have uh, to leave because you don't want residents to complain, for example, about about uh, noise. And after five, six uh, fantastic uh, years of, uh, of great nights, now the uh, mega club is coming to, to the end. And so for me, Printworks uh, highlights how meanwhile spaces can be a temporary solution to the closure of nightclubs, uh, but that we absolutely need new ways and more sustainable long-term ways to create affordable spaces for, for nightclubs. Can I just ask you about a couple of cities that are held up as paradigms in different ways? Firstly, Berlin. So the the impression I have of Berlin is if you were into nightlife, it's the place to go. And it's remained incredibly affordable. There is this phenomenon also called techno-tourism to, to Berlin. You literally go for the weekend. Berlin had such a particular history that uh, also allowed for basically half of the city at one point to be empty and to be affordable for artists to experiment. And and now, you know, the city looks very different. But there is perhaps one thing that Berlin did very well, and in a similar way also Amsterdam, which was a strong public support of night spaces. And the city really cherished uh, those spaces as artistic uh, spaces. So they received good uh, support from the state in the forms of funding, in forms of rent controls, and things like that really, really help. And then the other one I wanted to ask you about is famously stereotyped as the city that never sleeps, New York. When I was courting my now wife, I used to spend a lot of time there. And I loved that I could go to a restaurant at 11 o'clock and the kitchen would still be open. I'm a late night person. But then I got to thinking about that and why that's not necessarily transposable to a city like London. And I I wonder if you're in a European city where the perhaps more consideration is given to people's working life, that actually a nighttime economy can be exploitative. It can ask too much of workers. So I was wondering how you kind of um, circle that square, square that circle. I'm, I'm circling the square today. Yeah, it's hip to be square. I think it's a, it's a really important question. You have some cultural aspects that you have to, to bear in mind. I was born in Athens. I can tell you that from May to end of August, uh, you don't want to have dinner at uh, 7 p.m. because it's still like 30, 35 degrees and you wait until 11 p.m. or midnight. There are certain things that are linked to specific geographies and cultures. But exploitation takes place also there. There is lots of evidence that shows how a lot of the precarious jobs are jobs of the night. As I said, a lot of the cleaners, a lot of the people working in hospitality, a lot of the delivery workers are night workers. So there is somehow a sort of a link between what happens at dark is also the sort of you know, more invisible exploitation. Last question from me, Alessio. What's your favourite nightlife city? Ooh, that's a difficult question. Uh, but let's say... A good uh, night out in Athens, I would uh, recommend it to all of you. Ah, that's good. 
Alessio Colliulis, it's been fantastic to talk to you. You are a great guide to the nighttime economy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. To talk further about the nighttime economy, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Sasha Lord, who is Nighttime Economy Advisor, or maybe Czar. Uh, for Greater uh, Manchester. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. You know, they did toy with the idea of, of nightmare. Nightmare. Uh, although, although some people would call me a nightmare. I don't <laughs> think... It sounds quite plain, Nighttime Economy Advisor. Let me ask you, somebody who worked with Andy Burnham for all those yeah. years, is, is he somebody you would think is out? I think he's Nighttime Economy, Andy, isn't he? It, very, very much so. Yeah. I mean, what he doesn't know about, certainly Manchester music, you know, he, he's, he's always out and about gigging. You normally yeah. find him skulking at the back of the room with a beer in his hand, but yeah, yeah. He, he definitely supports Very, him. very similar to me, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you definitely skulk. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, Sasha, tell us a bit about your background and what was your journey into the world of nightlife and, you know, taking on this role in Greater Manchester. My background wasn't traditional, to be honest. I went to a very, very good school. I went to Manchester Grammar. But when I was in the sixth form, to my parents' delight, I discovered a nightclub called the Hacienda, which happened to coincide with the, the period that we call Manchester. And we were known then for like the Happy Mondays, New Order, James, Factory Records. And all of a sudden... English lit and geography wasn't actually at the top of my agenda. So I didn't get any A-levels. And, and you know, my, my colleagues at school that went to very good universities, they had a, a career set out for them. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, in a nutshell, I started to put parties on. Uh, first one being in 1994 and, and just kind of worked my way up from there. Why was that in 94, Sasha? It was the 4th of July, 94, the Hacienda. Wow. Amazing. So yes. you, you, you started off uh, right in the middle of things at the Hacienda then? I, I did, Jeff. And actually, the invoice is still hanging up in my office. And was it a successful party? It broke even. I was working in a clothes shop for £20 a day. And I think on that night, I made about £340. Wow. So it was a bit of a no-brainer to me. You know, you can put a DJ on and put parties on as, as opposed to working for the equivalent of 17 days measuring someone's inside leg. And it's interesting to get your perspective on this because obviously you've you've seen it from the outside across your career. And I think Manchester's particularly interesting because that period of time you're talking about, Manchester they called it, and the Hacienda, and when it really became a, a world capital for nightlife, that was born out of a kind of desolation. So it's it's 
interesting to hear, I guess, your perspective on the value of these things happening organically rather than being sort of levers that you, you can pull as a city. Well, without going down the, the, you know, the strong politics route, I am absolutely adamant. One of the reasons the Hacienda and places in Liverpool, you know, Manchester was bouncing, Liverpool was bouncing, Leeds, Sheffield, Blackburn, the Burnley, it was very much because we'd just been completely ignored. We completely left alone. And we, we talk about the north-south divide now. But it was during the Thatcher years and we were thrown to the wolves and, you know, we had to put on our own parties and it was a a place of escapism. And for for the weekend, you could just forget the doom and gloom that was happening and just enjoy yourself and party. And, And fair play to Manchester City Council at the time. They very quickly realised the whole ecology that, that the Hacienda and London nightclubs were bringing in. That's so interesting. I, I guess because I think the city centre back then, like no nobody lived there. I don't know the numbers, but it was in the hundreds. And now, of course, it's in the many thousands, which which brings us really to the the story that prompted us to, to do this episode, which was at the end of the last year, the Night and Day Cafe on Oldham Street, which is a fantastic venue and, and pretty much every band has played there on the way up, it was threatened with closure because the city centre has now become so attractive, especially that area, the the so-called Northern Quarter, that people are spending hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million pounds on flats there. And, and they're trying to have places closed down because of the noise. And that's, that's a very different problem to solve to how the city was able to let that thrive in the 80s and 90s, I guess. Well, you're right. So back in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, what you're talking about, there were a handful of of apartments on top of the Arndale Centre, actually. And the only thing that's on top of the Arndale Centre now is a set of beehives that belong to Bez from the Happy Mondays. Is that right? Yeah, it is actually, yeah. So that's (laughs) a random fact of the day you never thought you'd probably learn today. So I am extremely lucky in the fact that because I'm an advisor, I'm not contracted to the to the combined authority. And it gives me the freedom to say exactly what I want, because if I had to sit on my hands and not say what I actually thought, I wouldn't be a very good advisor, would I? And, you know, I have come out and supported night and day 100 percent because this is bigger than just night and day. And you're quite right, Jeff. You know, the capacity there is only 100, 120. But the amount of bands that that has given a stage and a platform to has been phenomenal. I think it actually appears in one of Elbow's lyrics. So it it is absolutely wrong what is going on. And I've said this. How can one resident move into a busy, hustling, bustling environment next door to a live music venue and then complain about they can hear live music? It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. In their defence... They bought the apartment during lockdown and then all of a sudden everything reopened again. So I think the fault actually lies on this particular occasion with the solicitor who didn't do his due diligence. But so moving forward, and this won't help night and day in Greater Manchester, Andy is trying to implement agents of change, which is an absolute common sense approach. It's a no brainer and something we've been calling for. For, for many, many years. And the way that works is, let's say you're a developer, Ed, and you want to build a block of apartments next door to night and day. Well, the council will come along and give you planning permission on the condition that you can prove you will absolutely insulate it so that no one renting or buying can complain about the music. Vice versa, in a partnership, if I own night and day 
and there's a block of apartments next to me and I want to rip the sound system out and put a much louder one in, then it's my responsibility to soundproof it so that it cannot cause any issues. That's a real common sense approach and it's the way forward. It doesn't help night and day on this instance because obviously it's, it's an ongoing case and they won't be able to soundproof it because you know the capacity is so small. But this is bigger than night and day. This would set a dangerous precedent for the rest of the UK. The residents can move into busy, noisy, hustly bustly nighttime economies and then complain about noise. And it's not just music, it's people chatting outside, having cigarettes, it's bins being emptied at four or five in the morning. You know, if you're going to move into the city centre, busy areas, expect a bit of noise. If you don't want it, go and move into the suburbs. It's like these these people that move next to churches and then complain about church bells. You know, <laughs> common sense. Just talk more generally, Sasha, about some of the challenges facing the nighttime economy and business owners sort of post-COVID, because obviously COVID was an incredibly difficult time for the nighttime economy. It absolutely was. And, you know, some of the stuff that the government actually did was good. Things like furlough, bounce back loans, VAT reducing it to 5%. Was fantastic. So we, we have two huge battles on our hand. Clearly, we've got a lot of debt. We're laden with debt. Footfall is dropping away. I can't sugarcoat it. We are a luxury when you go for a, a pint or for a, for a meal. The, the biggest factor and the biggest battle I've got at the moment, I'm spending the next two weeks down in, in London, uh, meetings in Parliament, is the energy firms are not passing on a lot of the energy relief and the other thing that was so upsetting for me two weeks ago, last year there were 5,000 reported cases of drink spiking. That is scratching the surface. Many, many girls and women don't report it, and men, they're not reporting this crime. And we were promised by Pretty Patel that this would become an amendment to the law, a specific crime. Suella Bravman's done a U-turn on this, and none of us can understand why. And what sort of message did that send out to, firstly, the girls, women and men on a night out, but secondly, the criminals who are doing this, if you are going to go out and, and intentionally poison someone's drink, you need to be knowing that you're looking at a custodial sentence, in my opinion. And I find it very hard to debate against that. Let's touch on safety in the nighttime economy, Sasha. I'm sure this is big on your agenda. So how do you think about these issues, making sure people are safe and enjoying themselves? I'm not a parent, but you know, I speak to parents on a daily basis, and that's their biggest concern when their kids are going out. You know, how are they going to get home? What time are they going to get home? It's number one on our agenda. What we were doing, actually, just pre-lockdown, we were creating safety havens. The first one we did was in Wigan, King Street, which is predominantly where all the bars and nightclubs are. We stationed a porter cabin on there and an ambulance with staff where you could go in and get treated, actually, on site. And it wasn't just for drunk people. It helped people who maybe lost their friends were anxious, wanted someone to talk to. You could charge your phones. You could contact your friends if, if you'd lost them again. That was really working. So we've, we've picked up again in uh, Wigan. We're going to be doing it again in Bolton. You also have to think of the staff. Very often, a venue will close and then the staff have to make their own way home. I don't think that's right. So I spoke to an employee. She works in a city centre nightclub. She finished at four in the morning and at four in the morning, it wasn't viable for her to get a taxi home because she was earning £10 an hour or something. It would cost her 15 quid to get home. That's one thing we have to do better in Greater Manchester, that is transport. So she would walk at four in the morning. So 
I've linked him with Unite, and on the 13th of February, myself, Andy Burnham, and Steve Rotherham from Liverpool City Region, we're going to be launching Get Me Home Safely, which is we're going to be asking operators to say, look, you had to become more responsible for your employees. And that might be something as simple as helping them pull the taxi, but allowing them to wait inside the venue until the actual taxi arrives and you can see them get home safely. So we need to put more emphasis on that. It's not just about the customers on a night out. It is also about the staff as well. Is thinking about a nighttime economy something that inherently should be devolved? So if if you in our um, fantasy utopia, the Jeffocracy, if we invited you to be, I don't know, the the, the national nightmare, is there just not a, a space for a one-size-fits-all approach to different towns and cities? Through COVID, I would absolutely support a national hospitality minister. It needs it. There are so many voices at the table. And I, I also, I'd i go one step further, Jeff and Ed, and say, you know, the, the people that the government are talking to at the moment are the big chains. They're going to weather the storm. They should be speaking to the smaller independents. Now, this coming Tuesday, I have arranged private dinner, actually, in London. And I've got people who I think are going to be making the right decisions next year. Uh, you know, Angela Rain is coming to it. Lucy Powell's coming to it. Jonathan Ashworth. There's quite a few names coming. And Are you feeling left out here, Ed? He's <laughs> basically named half the shadow cabinet there. Your invitation must have got lost in the post. Exactly. You're very welcome to come along. But I've got people sat in front of them who are struggling, people who have actually had to shut over the last six months. Because I think that is who the future government need to be listening to. You have to rebuild from the bottom upwards and not the top downwards. You have to be speaking to the real people. Well, look, Sasha Lord, you're obviously doing a fantastic job. Um, You speak incredibly eloquently about all the issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. Well, to round off our conversation, we have with us now Claire Lynch, who's an audio producer and resident of Soho in London. Hello, Claire. Hello. Thanks for talking to us. And Soho is... I guess, nationally known as as being London's playground. It's not somewhere you tend to think of people living. It seems to have escaped the clutches of residential developers to some extent. So so who who lives in Soho? How long have you been there and who are your neighbours? So I've lived here since 2000, first year on Compton Street, now on Borough Street. Uh, The biggest stable population in the area, which is around 3,200 people, are mostly in social housing. So we have over, I think, 700 housing association flats, and then we've got five council blocks. And then you've got some elderly residents from the registered tenants, you know, kind of going back pre-Margaret Thatcher. We do have kind of other people who own houses, not many of them, but there are some who own houses and others. But yeah, it's it's a very eclectic and very international residential community. So where I am, there used to be a lot of Italian residents that initially came over in the 50s and 60s when there was a huge amount of economic migration to London, and particularly a lot to Soho. And generally speaking, Soho residents are described as leaving their homes in a box, as in they leave when they die, because people tend to live in Soho for six months to a year, like a bucket list thing, yeah. or they stay here the long term. How's that situation arisen that the proportion of residents is so many people in social housing compared to other areas of London where former uh, commercial property would have been pounced upon by developers and turned into private flats? Well, so in Soho in the 1970s, when it wasn't a particularly desirable place for people to live, 
there was the ability to get money from the GLC for housing co-ops, set up housing associations. So Soho Housing Association was set up by a mixture of residents and other people who were very committed to Soho having stable housing for people who work in the area. When you have people that live somewhere, they care about the streets, they care about the area, and then you have a community that continues because there's right from the 17th century when Soho began, right through, there always has been a residential community. It's not something that's new. What changes have you seen, Claire, since you lived in Soho in the 2000s? Oh, God, (laughs) so many. Um, So when I first moved here, there were much more independently run restaurants, bars, shops than there are now. The increase in chains, whether it's hospitality, restaurants or shops, is is huge. You know, we have seven preps now. We've seen most recently a new bar chain move into the area. But this new chain, they've taken over what were independent pubs. So I don't know if you remember the Pillars of Hercules that was on Greek Street, just down from like the Gehuzar and things. Beautiful old pub, very long history. Previously, you know, pubs ran to 11, whatever. Anyway, several of these have now, they want to be 3am licenses. They want to do off sales of alcohol, which means they can sell it to be consumed off the premises. Basically, they're a chain. They're not independent where people knew the landlord, knew the staff and had a relationship with them. And whether you live or work in Soho, that's something I think people have valued over the years. And talk about your coexistence as a resident with the nightlife. So I have always lived on the first floor above a premises with a 3am license, both on Compton Street and here. Wow. And how is it? it? Well, it depends. So it's not always been the same establishment underneath me. So we did have one that was here for a very short amount of time, who my housing officer described the management team as vile. They decided that it was non-negotiable that they did a 24-hour refit on the property. It was pretty difficult, really. But... The ones we have now have been here since, I think, 2017, something like that. They have been a lot better, but their music initially, I could hear every word when they were playing it. They sent audio engineers, all sorts of different things. In the end, a group of us got together um, because nothing was really changing and we challenged their license. And then they soundproofed and they have a fantastic doorman. Because one of the things that has come in through residents' kind of interaction is that if bars close their door at 10pm so that the music doesn't go outside, that makes a big impact on people. Everybody is much happier. Soundproofing is also really good and really good door people also make a massive difference. So what the establishment under me, the person who works the door and has done for a really long time. He has a an old-fashioned mobile phone, not a smart one anyway, that's got the residents' numbers on. And I don't have to ring very often, but when I have, he's really nice. And immediately they do something about it. If there's good communication between the business and the residents, generally speaking, you know, it's it can be fine. And you've obviously chosen to stay living there. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, so, been here, I've been here, I've been here, this is my 23rd year, I wouldn't, yeah. we have an amazing community here, you know, and it is changing. We are what's described as a stress area in Soho or a cumulative impact area. We are about 3% of Westminster, but we have 25% of their licensed premises here. So, you know, it's really intense. And one thing that has happened is we had a thing called Soho Angels, Several other residents have done it where you stay up all night, basically. You go around in small teams with a pink high-vis 
waistcoat on. And anyone in in a, in a difficult circumstance gets taken either um, a taxi's arranged to get them home or they go to the local church hall where there's a John's ambulance staff there and they're looked after until they're ready to go home. So although very often we are demonised as residents, we do get out there and we do help and we do try and do things like protect uh, long-standing businesses, protect independent businesses, and also try and protect the mix of Soho, because although one may think about it, as Jeff said at the beginning of the nighttime economy, that's one part of the activities that go on here. You know, we have the film industry, we've got the music industry, we've got high-end hairdressing going on here, we've got tailoring going on, we've got specialist food shops, we've got lots and lots of different things that all try and operate in this tiny zone and have successfully for over a century. And we want that mix. That's what makes it a really amazing place. So do you think it's an inevitability then that uh, an an area like Soho, the thing that makes it vibrant and exciting, eventually draws money? And then that money being attracted to an area then kills that thing in the first place? Because it doesn't quite sound like that, the way you're describing your experience as a resident. I mean, we have had a change in planning policy. So shops and hairdressers and restaurants are all in the same planning class. So that's kind of means you can change one to another. And we are losing shops, partly perhaps due to the internet and internet shopping. That is changing Soho. There's a huge campaign recently to save an Italian delicatessen on Old Compton Street. You know, thousands and thousands of people signing it. But as the manager said, if every one of them spent £10 in the shop, it would be amazing. People get really like doughy-eyed over, oh my God, that place that I've loved for all these decades, but when was the last time they spent any money in it? You know, as residents, we use these independent businesses, but as much as people want these special places to stay open, the visitors and those that work here have to use them as well. We can't do it all. It is an incredibly special place and we still do have some amazing places. And we've got various different local organisations, including the Soho Neighbourhood Forum, who's about to do um, an audit of all the heritage in the area. There are things being done to try and protect the area. Globally, though, you'll see that cities have changed. Wherever you travel to, you'll see chains there when you might not have seen them before. You'll see the same struggles. It's not just a Soho or a London thing. Let's end by asking you, Claire, what's your favourite thing about living in Soho? The community. The people. I come out of my door and I will always see... Whether it be diagonally opposite me, there's a um, a big movie star who drinks coffee who chats away like mad uh, in a lovely way. But then I'll chat to an old lady who's used to live above a hotel around here who uh, smokes like a chimney and is um, in her 80s and absolutely adorable. And then, you know, someone on the way to dropping their child off to school. And then the guy who runs the fruit and vegetable stall and has done since he was worked on it since he was 14. And, you know, it's kind of it's the people. It's an incredible community, Um, and I would never give that up. During lockdown, I did a radio show from my bedroom five days a week, trying to make sure that the community stayed together, bringing people every morning on a tiny little radio show and talking to people and sharing information with people. You know, somebody's had a baby, and how amazing is that? And, you know, and equally, a bit, you know, when people passed away, I had people reading out obituaries and, and, you know, eulogies. But it is the people. You've given us a fantastic insight into uh, Soho and what it's like to live there. Claire Lynch, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Well, after all that, I'm quite keen to go clubbing with you. 
Absolutely. Maybe I am more of a nighttime person than I thought I was. Just listening to Claire there talk about Soho. I worked there for so many years and did so much going out. Do you want a handy mnemonic to remember the streets of Soho? Go on. Going for dinner with Billy Piper. Greek. Going. For Frith. Dinner. Dean. Wardour with Billy. Berwick and Piper Poland. Wow. If you ever want to know your way around Soho, forgetting wow. which street is which, going for dinner with Billy Piper, that's wow. how you do it. Yeah. That's, that's impressive. But they are special places where the nighttime economy is really embraced. And I think about this so much with Manchester. I think the city has a real sense of itself because of the attention that has been paid to nightlife and, and culture. And there were pivotal figures in that. There's Tony Wilson, who founded Factory Records. That's his legacy to the city. But it's not just the people who are going to the clubs or, or going to the gigs. It's done something more broadly for a sense of identity, cultural identity and belonging in the city, as well as the money it generates and the tourism it generates. And I I think that's important, what it can do for a sense of place. I mean, I suppose one thing that occurs to me is you can be a nighttime person without being a clubbing person. Yeah, you can just not tambulate. Yeah, and the nighttime economy covers that whole range of areas. I think it's important that we asked about the workforce in this. Because, you know, it's great that people are having a good time. It's also important that the people who are working there, quite often antisocial hours are properly protected. Yes. And I think that is a massive challenge, which, like Sasha acknowledged, I think. Yeah, but we've got the uh, the next few weekends all sorted, haven't we? We're off to uh, Athens with Alessio, uh, then uh, then Manchester with Sasha, and then we'll round it off in yeah. Soho, going for dinner with Billy Piper, with Claire. Just so I know in advance, what time are we carrying on to? You like to be home before the shipping forecast. Well, I don't, I don't mind staying up, but age makes it harder, doesn't it? Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Whoa, we're in the outro. We are. Now, you sent me quite an intriguing picture or an intriguing clip. Was it a gif? It wasn't quite a gif. It was very short. Yeah. Did I tell you ages ago I took Eugene to a studio recording of The Masked Singer? You didn't tell me that, but I knew that you were big fans of The Masked Singer. He, he loves it. And uh, a friend of mine arranged for us to go. And this That's was brilliant. back in the autumn of last year. And we had such a great time. And he was up and dancing. And he has been asking me ever since, Dad, when will we be on the TV? Yeah. And as the transmission date started to approach, I was thinking... You don't really see the audience very much in this show. And there's a very good chance you're not going to be able to spot us. And I'm now worried that you've been telling everybody at school you're going to be on the TV and they're they're going to think you're some kind of fantasist. But fortunately, uh, at the end of the last episode, there's an audience cutaway and we're clearly visible having the time of our lives in the front row. Was he really pleased to see it, Gene? Oh, yeah, he was delighted. Has it tempted you to uh, to either want to appear on The Mass Singer or accompany us to a recording next year? Uh, no. <laughs> should we thank our guests? We should. Thank you to Alessio Colliulis, to Sasha Lord and to Claire Lynch. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer 
is a content producer. She had to go out and sample a lot of nightlife Definitely. to research this week's uh, Definitely. episode. It's a hard gig, yep. It is. Uh, she's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be clubbing. 